Welcome to Thrive Deeper, the show based on the Thrive Bible Reading Guides. This is an ongoing conversation about God's Word with Thrive author, Dr. Matthew Jacoby. Morning, Stu. How are you going today? I'm well. Is it still morning? It is still morning. It's yes, just, you go. Yep. just still morning. Mm. I'm excited, Matt. We, well, excited and... Um, a little bit of intrepidness there, really, as we get into this first part of trepidation. Yes, yeah. uh, Ephesians. We're jumping into Ephesians, the book uh, or the letter from Paul to the church in Ephesus. Well, perhaps the church in Ephesus, or perhaps also other churches in Asia Minor at the time, yeah. but certainly them included. And we're going to be beginning at Ephesians chapter one and working our way today through to chapter three. Mm. So, just as a bit of a background, Ephesus was an important city in the Western. Asia Minor, which is now Turkey, located on the most direct sea and land route to the eastern provinces of the Roman Empire, so pretty important in terms of a trade route. Uh, It was also without equal, really, in anywhere in the world at the time in terms of a cosmopolitan trade city. Um, there was certainly no other city that was more famous or more, more populous at the time than mm. Ephesus. It sort of was up there with Rome and Corinth and Antioch and Alexandria and others as well. Uh, but because it was at the intersection of these major trade routes, Ephesus became a commercial centre. It boasted a pagan temple dedicated to the Roman goddess Diana or Artemis. And we read a bit about that in Acts chapter 19. Mm. Uh, Paul made Ephesus a centre for evangelism for about three years for him, uh, and the church there apparently flourished for quite some time. Of course, Paul wrote this letter likely when he was in prison in Rome, Mm -hmm. is the expectation, and probably the same time he wrote Colossians, Mm -hmm. um, it would be suggested as well, I think, uh, to the church in Ephesus. I think important to also note that that as a result of its location, Ephesus' population would have been largely Gentile. Mm. Uh, predominantly Gentile, yeah. with only a small number of Jews there. So, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, there it's we... interesting, Stu, that the <clears throat> there are ancient copies of this letter that yeah. actually don't have the like manuscripts that don't yeah. have the uh, to the church in, in Ephesus in there, yeah. and they think that probably it's because this was a circular letter that went to a lot of different churches, yeah. and they just kind of added in the. To the to the you know Ephesus or yeah. so forth, yeah. you know that it was often sent with someone, and there's yes. evidence of that here in the letter, and that would be read in different churches in different places. So, yeah. so a bit of a circular yeah. letter, as you say, and also a fairly significant chunk of it's almost identical to Colossians. So that would almost, in a sense, suggest that was what yeah, was happening here. Yeah, that's right. Here. There the are similar letter. similar yeah. themes in there, and yeah. interesting in, in the Book of Ephesians, no particular personal names of people in the church in Ephesus, which yeah. also supports that, but still absolutely um, mm. valid. Uh, teaching from Paul, and it's, you know that not, not not in any way devalues what's being done here, yeah. but um, more Paul probably addressing common problems across the yeah, church in right. Asia Minor at the time. So, yeah, let me let me sell Stu just these letters of Paul just in general, just for a moment, because I I have heard from some people they do struggle a little bit with the epistles. You know, people love the stories and so forth, uh, love the gospels, but when it comes to epistles, a lot of people get a little lost because it's quite complex. Yeah. And this is quite complex. There's a lot of complexity to these letters. But it's also, and this is me selling it, because I come back to these again and again and again. It's the, Actually, it's the letters in the New Testament that I come back to most frequently. Okay. Uh, it, you know, I read through them again and again and again. And partly for me, what makes it possible to come back is the richness uh, of what is actually in these mm. letters. And yes, it is complex, but you keep discovering more New things. things. Yeah. And, you know, in condensed form, you know, Paul has put in here the 
just the the core elements of the Christian faith in in a, such a profound way. And you know, Paul has this mixture of you know he's a very astute thinker. He has this very strong rabbinic background. He's also quite well versed in Greek uh, philosophy and so in pagan thought. But he's also got this incredible, incredibly vitalized experience. For me, these words in these epistles are windows to an experience that Paul has really embodied in many respects. I mean, yeah. this guy has probably more than anyone else has explored the extents, you know, the, of, of the the new sort of land of. The Christian, Christian life, yeah. you know, I mean, he, this is a guy that's explored that. And mm. and, and let's course, remember, came from a point of being a, a persecutor of that. That's right. Yeah. You know, so so the whole journey, you know, from being someone oh, who yeah. wasn't even just on zero, I don't care either way, was actually out looking to destroy yeah, that's right. the Christians. Yeah. You know, so and so I think, journey. you know, I think for him, so much of this represents not only his intellectual acumen, but his the depth of his spirituality. Mm. And, and that's the thing that comes through, you know, the most. So I know at times it seems a little academic, but there is deep, deep, there's a yeah. deep spiritual well here. And for me, th- these letters are, are a window into places that I want to go. Mm. You know, it's it's like a map, you know, that that actually as I reflect on these and and it's really been refreshing for me to read through this again, Stu, as, as we've prepared for this. I mean, I felt so impacted yet again. And I have read this letter again and again and again and yet I'm just so refreshed by it again. So I would encourage you if you do feel like that, you do uh feel that these letters are a little dense Try not to just skim over the top, but really yeah. try to get down into the into the roots a little bit there I think and that's dig a, a bit r- deeper. Really good point because I found reading it through the first time, you try to read it like other Bible passages where you mm-hmm. read, you know, the big chunks that maybe your Bible's broken it down into. But in fact, in this particular letter anyway, and, and probably true of many of Paul's letters, every single sentence actually you need to stop and read again to take in yeah. the full it, it's not like part of the next thing it's actually a big statement and then moves yeah. on to the next thing and yeah. it's another big statement and I, yeah. I found that was important for me too I mean in the original Greek there's some very long sentences in there yeah well let's this. let's talk let's about jump that then as that. we yeah. uh, as we jump in the first it, by the way it follows the normal conventions around yes. letters yep uh, so it starts with the writer, which is always useful. If you ever got a letter, yeah, Stu, yeah. and you think, who is this from? You've got to go right, right to, to the, the bottom. End. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, uh, to, to work out who it's from or an email or something. Well, they put the they put their right name at the right at the start. And now this first chunk from ch- verse three right down to verse 14 is actually all one long sentence. Yeah, it is. In the Greek. In the Greek. Yeah. It's one continuous sentence. I think it's sentence. 255 words or something. It's a massive... Oh, yeah. it's crazy. Yeah. And there's a purpose to this, because this is actually a doxology. It's a, it's a, almost like a hymn of praise. Yes. Yeah. And I know there's a lot of dense kind of theology in this, but this is what's wonderful, that it's, he doesn't jump into a theological dissertation. This is actually a song of praise. And, and the kind of piling up of clauses here. It's a literary thing that he's doing to sort of pile up all of the things that God has done for us. It's like, and this, and this, and this, and, and, you know, elaborating and elaborating. And so you get these clauses piled up for, you know, for which this is the, you know, longest sentence uh, in the whole Bible. But the effect of it is that this is what God has done for us. Mm. And Mm. 
the emphasis, and this is that comes out here, and that really stretches through this book, but particularly in this first section, is this emphasis on God's purpose. Yeah. Uh, everything is about God's purpose. Everything is according to God's purpose. I mean, we see that expressed in the book of Romans, and we see that in all, uh, all Paul's letters, but he's got a very strong sense that everything is unfolding no matter what the sort of chaos in the world, that God's purpose is at work. Now, this is important because it bridges what we've seen uh, in the book of Daniel. Yes. Uh, that was a big theme in the book of Daniel. God wanted to show Daniel, and this is part of the point of all of these visions of the empires that were going to come and go, you know, to a people who are, you know, who are exiles in a kind of minority yeah. people group. God is saying to them, my sovereign purpose is going to be realized through all of the rising and falling of empires. everything else. Yeah. And Paul, as a you know classic Hebrew thinker, is picking up on that theme. This is God's purpose yeah. at work here. This is not God just being reactionary to, to what's no, happening right. in the world. God's purpose is calmly at work. Now, this is not this is not fate like in the Greek world or in stoicism where they believe that you know ev- everything that happens even all the bad things is pa- is this part of this sort of meticulous kind of fate where everything but if it's is, happen, is exactly happens. as yep. it as it should be yeah. well yeah. the biblical worldview that Paul upholds is no the world has descended into chaos the world isn't the way that it should be but through all of that God is working out his perfect purpose yeah. through all of that and often in spite of that sometimes. So it's not saying that, you know, everything that happens, it's like, you know, God made all of these terrible things happen. No, uh, all of these things are happening. Then the world isn't the way that God wants them to be, but uh, his perfect purpose is, is being, being realized uh, yeah. through that. So one of the the things that he celebrates, again, in classic Hebrew form, is he celebrates the the choosing of the people of God. This is uh, a big thing in Old Testament theology. This idea that God chose Israel. God came to Abraham and he said, leave your faith. And yes, there was a response of faith that Abraham uh, needed to respond with. That's faith. That's right. Uh, But, you know, God's choosing of this people, that's a very strong theme, you know, throughout the Old Testament. We see that in the prophets, Isaiah, Mm. and, Mm. you know, God chose you. You were just sitting in the gutter and and God came along and he lifted you up. And and Paul's going to say the same thing here in chapter two, when you were dead in transgressions, Mm. same as those passages in, you know, Isaiah, and we saw those in Ezekiel. He chose Jesus as well, the the suffering servant. That's right. Where God says to Israel, you know, you were lying in the gutter and, in, you know, and I picked you up and I healed you and raised you up to be the people you are now. That's a big theme in the Old Testament, that choosing of God's people. So what he does here is that he's saying to a Gentile people, you now are also part of this. Yeah. The same theology that you see uh, is expressed throughout the Old Testament, you know, God's election of Israel. Mm. So also he's saying God has elected you to be part of his people. And so you get this. So I'll read uh, yeah. verse three. Yeah, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So holy, set apart, just like Israel, and blameless to live a certain kind of life. 
Uh, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Okay, so we get this this repeated theme. Then down in verse 8, talks about the love of God, which he lavished uh, upon us according to the mystery of his will, according to this, according to his purpose, it says there. Yeah. Then in verse 11, in him we have attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so you get this right through this thing. That kind of sets it up. So uh, but before we dive into the complexities of that idea, let's just recognize this flows right out of Paul as a Hebrew thinker yes. is applying what was always said about Israel. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, as in fact, Jesus does the same actually, when he says this to his disciples, mm. uh, Stewie says, you didn't choose me. I, I chose, chose you. you. Right. And, and that's an important statement because it's connected with what is always said about Israel. You know, I chose you, God said, and I set you apart to be this kind of people now live up to it. Mm. And so Jesus says, you didn't choose me. Remember, Remember, to his disciples, I chose you, just remember that. Mm. And Paul is saying exactly the same thing here to these Gentiles, saying, listen, uh, you didn't choose God first, uh, he chose you. Now, this is important, lest in grappling with this idea of God choosing people beforehand, lest we think, oh, well, God kind of foresaw that they were going to have faith and he chose them on that basis. That works against that whole theme that works right from the beginning of the Bible. The whole purpose of that theme is that it wasn't on the basis of anything that these people did. Certainly with Israel, in those passages in Isaiah and Ezekiel, where they summarize uh, the history of the people, it certainly isn't that God foresaw that they were just going to be the most wonderful, faithful people. <laughs> mm. on, on the contrary, yeah. uh, you know, if, if anything, God foresaw that it was going to be hard going, that they were going to be mm. uh, not always faithful and mm. probably most of the time not. And yet God still emphasized, and yet I still chose you. It's interesting to me that in the Old Testament, and a question really rather than an answer, it seems more that the choosing is about a role for Israel to step into. It's like not every single single person in the nation of Israel yeah. was living according, but yeah, God had right. chosen yeah. them as a people for a role to bring glory to his name yeah, and to be a right. witness yeah. to the world. So in some ways, it's not necessarily about a person being chosen. It's about a people's being chosen for yeah. a role. Is it? Is that? Well, well, yes. But I mean, with the exception maybe of Abraham, who was clearly an individual yeah. chosen. But yeah. be, beyond that, we don't, you know, this guy in Judea is and this guy isn't. It, yeah. It's more Judea. As a nation, you you were chosen to be my people. And, yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Yes, they were. and and But they were chosen. One of the problems, and, and that is true, but we've just got to be careful not to abstract that too much. Yeah, like sure. when we talk about he chose a people. Yeah, but a people is made up of individual people yes. who were descendants. And, and in that case- there's a real promise to actual individuals that they carry in themselves yes. as descendants of Abraham, right? Yeah. Now, what happens throughout the Bible is you get this remnant theology, uh, and you know Paul's going to talk about this in, in the book of Romans, of course. You get this remnant theology where there's this constant redefinition of who belongs to God's people, you know, so it's sort of down to a remnant. But the, pro the, the promise is still there to all of the original of God's people, even yeah. then. It, it certainly flows through to individuals because yes. any individual uh, Jewish person in Old Testament times, and even now, there's a sense, I am part of God's chosen people. 
and God has made certain promises. Now, it's another question whether they are being faithful to the covenant and therefore whether they get to enjoy the the benefits of the covenant. But what is the case is God's choice of them uh, as, as a people. So what Paul is doing here is in the same way saying, God... You are believers because God has chosen you. You, you. you enjoy this covenant status because God has chosen you. In fact, he says in, in Romans chapter 2 that you know it is through faith, but that is not even of yourselves. That's, That's a right. gift of Given God, right? Yeah. Because as he says, you were dead in mm. transgressions. like mm. You were dead and God raised you up. So dead people can't make yeah. themselves alive. Uh, of course, we need to respond to that and this is not taking away from human choice this is where we get to the theological questions that get raised over this mm. now one of the problems with this stew is that with the theological questions is that they they are trying to work out something they're trying to connect two important ideas one is the idea what and, and there's no doubt that it clearly says here that god is you know chooses that he predestines yeah. uh, people it's trying to connect that with the reality of our responsibility because we might deduce from that, well, if that's the case, then it doesn't matter what we decide. You know, God's either uh, chosen me or he hasn't. It's no yeah. point going out and sharing the gospel because God's yeah. already chosen who he's, you know, who he's going to uh, bring into his kingdom. And so mm. it's all just going to it's going to be what it's going to be. No, actually. Uh, that's not the case. There's a very big emphasis, and this is also uh, throughout the Old Testament, a very big emphasis from the moment of those two trees in the Garden of Eden, uh, big emphasis on mm. human choice and, your, and, and our response to God, mm. and a sense that our choices mm. uh, really matter. We, we, in a sense, uh, we've been given this right to make choices, to determine our own future in, in, by our choices. Now, hang on, how does that work? If our choices determine our future, but then God has predestined us, how does that work together? Because logically it doesn't fit together. So what you've had is these debates over, well, which one is it, right? Is it, uh, do we go predestination and then we play down the choice thing and we say, well, you know, we just only appear to have a sort of choice or we- Or uh, God knew in advance the choice we would make. That's right. In a yeah. sense. Or, or, or um, we even deduce yeah. from that, well, and God has even chosen those who he's going to who he's going to condemn in the yes. end. And, and, and you sort of do mm. silly things like that. Mm. Uh, you know, I think that's a problem when we start getting to what that's called double predestination, because it's, a, it's deducing something from the original idea. Or you can go- lean into the human choice and you Play can interpret down. the election predestination part as simply foreknowledge. No, God looked ahead yeah. and he saw that um, that you were going to have faith and so he he chose you, yeah. you know, yeah. on, on the basis of that. The, the problem there, Stu, is that we're trying to create this closed, neat system of a logical theology dealing with an open reality. And this is where I think biblical worldview in our other podcast, and, yeah. and I'd like to keep pointing to yeah, that, that's Stu, great. Uh, the Thrive Perspectives podcast, uh, and I do encourage you to listen to that. There's lots of good topics on that. Uh, but we've talked a lot about Christian worldview and and of the openness of the Christian world. There is more to reality than our language or our logic can grasp, yes. right? In that sense, reality is not a closed logical yeah. system uh, or a closed material system. There are dimensions to reality that go way beyond what our logic 
and as you say, Paul acknowledges this, doesn't he? In fact, in after discussing this idea in Romans chapters nine to eleven, at the end of eleven, you know, chapter eleven, he says, "Oh, the depths of the wisdom, you know, of God, and how unsearchable His judgments, His paths beyond. Who can know the mind of the Lord, and mm. so forth?" Mm. So he recognizes that, in true Hebrew fashion, he recognizes the paradoxes. And, you know, in Hebrew thought, there was an acceptance of paradoxes. Right. Uh, with God, as uh, the as Blaise Pascal, a philosopher from a few hundred years ago, uh, said, with God, a hundred contradictions could be false. Like, because no, he is yeah. outside our space kind of space time logic, logic, right? And, so yeah. the problem with when we try and do theology like this, where we try and work it all out, we try and connect it together so it makes sense. Mm. There's a real problem with trying to do that because essentially what you're trying to do is that you're trying to encapsulate an idea or, or realities that belong to this open system of reality that goes into dimensions that we cannot grasp with our logic. It's trying to encapsulate that or circumscribe that with the closed system of language and logic yeah. that we have. So this is just pushing systematic theology, which is a very necessary discipline. Systematic theology is about defining concepts mm, and so mm. forth. But if we do not retain the paradoxes, mm. then it ceases to reflect yeah. the open system of reality that our worldview recognizes. Yeah. A couple of things on that, though, that I, I think, yeah. first of all, it's important to dispel. I think some people would take this first passage that we've just read as a as a pointer to universalism, which is the fact that God's mm. came to save everybody. And I think that's clearly Paul's not mm. saying that here. And I think you've just spoken to that in mm. terms of our personal decision and choice mm. that we need to make. But I think the reason perhaps many people do get hung up on this point, it's because it's about the security of their salvation. They want yeah. to know, how can I know for sure that I'm <laughs> saved? And, and you know, this passage suddenly seems, well, is it just God or is it me? Or what do I need yeah. to do to be, be sure of that? And I think that's why probably we dig into this so much to try to find a way to, as you say, make it logical to us so that we can yeah. feel like we can stand on something firm. But in some ways, we just have to be comfortable with the mystery, and that's where faith comes in, isn't it? That's where we, yeah, absolutely. we just have to trust that God has made the promises that God's made for the purposes of God, and if we step into yeah. that. Yeah, it's, it's not like God's got this massive checklist of, yeah. of things that we have to qualify. You actually don't have to qualify. You yeah. have to trust in Jesus Christ right. for your salvation. It's about being reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, which, mm. which means giving your life back to God. Mm. But you know the way that I've expressed that before is like you are brought back into the household of God, and in inside the household of God is a grace zone, right? And you can trip up and mess up and fail in all sorts of different ways and fail to live up to your faith, but that's all happening inside the grace zone, right? Yeah. So there's the, inside the grace zone, there's never you can't exhaust nothing that will grace. separate you from the love of God. And this is actually <clears throat> the point, Stu, of this idea because grace, by the way, is is very important for us to understand that grace is not just a New Testament idea. Uh, it rules the day throughout the Old Testament. And this is actually the point of this idea stretching right back into the Old Testament from the time of Abraham, the fact that God chose this people. Yes. The emphasis there, it's by grace. It was nothing to do with you, right? It was God's choice and, and it was by grace. So mm. you didn't earn it in any way. This is partly why Paul is saying this, because he wants us to know it's all of God. He wants to give all praise to God for what God has done. Yeah. And and he wants us to know that there was, in a sense, never a time when God didn't love us in this special yeah. sort of sense. Remember, God is outside of time, right? Yeah, it's great. And so 
God isn't inside this thing with the system of time where there's this point where oh, suddenly I'm not angry anymore. And here's yeah. a, here's now, a now from our point of view, that absolutely, uh, you know, as Paul goes on to say in chapter two, once you were dead in your transgressions, yes. like once you were not a people, once you did not belong to God, you were so here's outside the, paradox. the grace That's zone, right. as you just spoke. That's yeah. right. So here's the paradox is that in, on the one sense, he's saying to them, you know, you were chosen before the foundation of the world. But then on the other hand, he's saying, but there was a time when you weren't part of God's people. So, yeah. so you've got the paradoxes at work here. And I just think it's important to retain those paradoxes yes. yeah. because they're both important mm. uh, ideas. They mm. just don't fit together in a logical system. The other big theme that we see already here, Stu, and, and throughout this book is the repetition of the phrase in Christ. Yes. In Christ, in Christ, in him, in him, in him. It is right through the letter again and again and again, right? All of these things happened in, in Christ. Christ. This is a very, yeah. uh, very important idea. And, and if you go through your Bible and you just underline, I mean, I've uh, I've got my Bible on my uh, iPad here mm. so I can color code all of these things which I have here. And it's just like all the way through, you know? <laughs> um, so for example, this kind of climax is in chapter two where he says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up in him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. Yeah, You, you can't get more no. uh, emphatic than that. So the idea here is that, that everything that happened, everything that Jesus did and everything that happened, if we identify ourselves with Jesus Christ, then everything that he did and that happened to him happened to us. He is our representative we are in that sense we're in him it's a strong biblical idea and it you know goes right back to the beginning with adam as the kind of federal head let's call it of the of the human race yeah you know it's like when you know if our i don't know to use an example if our prime minister promised certain uh, amount of uh, military aid to ukraine and so ukraine says oh you know uh, uh, the australians have given us this mm. well i I didn't. I mean, well, yeah. I guess I did through my taxes or whatever, maybe. Yeah. But, uh, but you know, that the, yep. the Australians mm-hmm. have you know decided to you know give us this whatever. Well, uh, it's because the decision that the head made is, in a sense, everybody uh, yeah. is not only affected, but everyone is counted as having done that. Yes, you know. So this is this idea of federal headship. So yeah. with Adam and yep. Paul makes this argument in Romans chapter five. You know, when Adam sinned, we all the sinned, sinned, right? Yeah. It, because we were all in Adam, right? Mm. And this is the importance of this. Mm. And so Christ has become the second Adam, so that. We can make a choice now, and this is the choice. We're back to the two trees. Because remember, Adam had to make a choice too, so yeah, it's not different right. now. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yep. Adam had to make a choice. And now we have to make and a And now choice. We, we can now make a choice as whether we will be in Adam or in Christ. Yes. You know, so we can, in a sense, step out from underneath the shadow of Adam, Adam and step under Christ. And that means that everything that Christ did and everything that happened to him has happened to, to us. us. So we have died. We've paid, our sins have been paid in full, right? Yeah, We've yeah. suffered the penalty for our sins in Christ. Mm. We have been raised up and seated at the right hand of God in mm. Christ. Mm. So in Christ, we are seated at the right hand of God, the Father. Yeah. Man, yeah, yeah. that is... We don't live like that a lot of the time. Oh, we that is. <laughs> you know. And what Paul is doing here yeah. is that he is emphasizing the extent 
of the the spiritual blessings that we have uh, in Christ. Mm. He Mm. says uh, he's blessed us in Christ with every every spiritual blessing blessing. in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. I mean, even right through here. And so you've got this, this idea that all of this, everything that happened, happened to him. And that goes right through to him being seated at the right hand of God, the father. So he's wanting to, Help these people to understand who they actually are now. Position they've yeah, been this given is not you've just Christ. not you've not just adopted a new belief system. Yeah. That you positionally are in a completely, completely different, different space, place. right? Yeah. You are set apart now. Yeah. Uh, you are seated at the right hand of God mm. the Father in Jesus Christ. Mm. And and he's going to now want them to live accordingly, right? Yeah. Which may involve a lot of sacrifice. Yeah. The second half of the book, and we'll look at that next week, is going to emphasize the implications. Yeah, of that. I thought that was really interesting because he, he does seem to divide this up. First of all, the, the first half of the letter is really applying the truths. Yeah. Oh, sorry, is the truths of our of our faith, and then the second half is how we now need to yeah. live as a result of that. Yeah, you know how we apply those to our life. Yeah, that's right. So one of the um the other emphasis here. This is very trinitarian, by the way. Throughout mm. this, yeah. you get you know God did this, God chose, God chose in Christ the yep. Son uh, to receive of the Holy Spirit. This is yeah. right through this letter. Yeah, so in God ways. chose the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> uh, it's Jesus redeemed and the Holy Spirit seals. Yeah, that's in a right. Sense, really, yeah. so. so in verse 13, it says here, in him, that is in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So when it's talking about the promised Holy Spirit, this is the promise of Joel 2. You know, in those days, I will pour out my spirit on, uh, you know, Ezekiel chapter 36, you know, I'll sprinkle clean water on you and so forth. Yep. Uh, Jesus talks about the the Holy Spirit that was promised when he talks about in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So this is talking about that baptism of the Holy Spirit is a ceiling. Okay. Uh, for So uh, just where are you again, Matt? Just uh, I'm in chapter, uh, chapter one, one, verse 13. 13. Right. And this is an important verse to you because... So sometimes this gets separated out like this is something separate, like you mm. become a Christian and then some sometime down the track, uh, you, you, know, you, you, you well, I don't know, <laughs> or you receive the Holy Spirit yeah, as though yeah. it's some kind of second thing. thing. Now, I, I should say, experientially, it certainly could unfold a little bit like that in the sense that, you know, we have moments where there's a real release of the Holy Spirit through, you know, perhaps, you know, a big breakthrough in our growth or if there's a extra sense of a real surrender to God. And, yeah. and those can be mom- moments and have for people mm. where they've had a, a particularly significant infilling of the Holy Spirit because, mm. you know, we're, we're told that we should be filled with the Holy Spirit again and again and again. But there is one baptism, many fillings. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit, according to this, is is, is at Mm. that that point of decision. Mm. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Mm. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit seals us for salvation. Uh, that's actually the seal of salvation upon us. And notice he says the promised Holy Spirit, lest we think it's something else. Yes. Uh, but when he talks about the promised Holy Spirit, and Jesus talks about this in Acts chapter 1, yeah. he's talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit because when Jesus says the promised Holy Spirit, and he, mm. and then he's mm. referring to what's going to happen in Acts chapter 2. Yeah. So this flows uh, flows out. Of course, the apostles experience this in stages because remember they're still essentially in, under the old covenant. Yes, and then the blessing of the Holy Spirit is given in Acts chapter two. You know, yes. uh, because Jesus says, you know, when I'm lifted up, then I'll pour out yeah, my spirit. Uh, my spirit. Yeah. So yeah. after this very long sentence, 
which is an expression of praise, lest we just think it's just a very a whole lot of complex theology. Mm. No, it's a mm. song of praise yeah, it is. at the start. Next, we have, well, does it go into uh, you know, a theological dissertation now? No, it goes into a prayer now. Yes, that's right. This is the nature of this uh, sort of material. So he says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love, and he goes into this, uh, into this prayer. And there he emphasizes, uh, again, Jesus being seated at the right hand of God, far above all rule, power, and dominion. Yeah. This is a theme throughout this uh, he's going to continually refer to principalities and powers, uh, all dominions. Now, to a, a people living in the area of Asia Minor, Ephesus, and these other areas, this under is Roman important. Rule at the time, too. Yeah, under Roman rule at the time. Mm. Not only are they under the emperor, who mm. claims to be divine, but there are all of these other cults, Gods, you know, like the Artemis, uh, Artemis, and so forth. Mm. And there, I mean, it's all over the place, mm. right? And there's a lot to be feared in a sense in that these localized deities, were, were they were really feared yeah. uh, by people. Yeah. And Paul is saying, no longer do you Gentiles need to fear any of that, right? Yeah. Their lives have been driven by a lot of these fears up to this point. It was very prominent. I mean, and it's it difficult for yeah, us to imagine, totally. isn't it? Yeah, totally it is. Impossible for us to, to imagine. Yeah, as you say, it was very prominent that the whole Worship of Artemis, and there's a, yep. in fact one of the biggest temples in the in the world. Yeah. I think in the ancient world, anyway, yeah. is is That's that right. temple to, to Artemis right. there. And yeah. I think Paul actually spoke in that temple at one yeah, point yeah. in time. Yeah, I that's think. right. Yeah. yeah, and there were, you know, there were all these diviners and all yeah. of this occult activity, very much and it was all demonic. Of, well, it was yeah, all totally. outright demonic, right? Yeah. And so there's a lot of aspects of this that these people lived in fear of all of these things. And what Paul is saying here is that mm. you no longer need to live yeah. in fear. And, and I think also that Jesus doesn't just fit somewhere in the hierarchy of all of these Yeah, gods. that's true. Actually, he's above everything. Yeah, and and that's right. that, that verse 20, 21, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and yeah. every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put everything under his feet, which of course yeah. is a reference from Psalm, and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which yeah, is that's his right. body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Yeah, that's right. This is that's the other theme throughout this letter is the is centrality yeah, of the church. Yeah. Is it's yeah. massive here that this is for the church. It's through the church. It's we, you know, ministry is through. We, this is so important for us to grasp mm. in our very mm. individualistic. Yeah. You know, this is between me and God, and and you know, there are people that say, "Oh, I don't really feel the need for a church." Well, what? But yeah. Yes, that's okay if you think that it's just about your faith is just this private thing between you and God, and then you get on with your life. But if you mm. want to live for purpose, mm. then we're not called to be individualistic mavericks just no. out there. Like, you but know, also, let's remember the church is the there. bride of Christ. So yeah. are we saying, I don't really like the bride of Christ? If we, oh, I'm not really into the church. Oh, really? You're going to say that? To well, it's filled with people like us, Stu. Exactly, so it's right. imperfect people, which is why you know the church is always imperfect, but it's God's plan A and exactly. there's no plan B. There is no plan. And so the emphasis here again and again, all these things are going to happen through the church. And mm. so when he talks of them as being a chosen people, he's talking about the church, being part of the church. That's right. uh, and you know, we'll follow that through the letter as well. But th so through, it's really from the beginning of chapter two, that he, you know, addresses this people and helps them to realize how far they've come, you know. Yeah, really. Chapter two is a chapter about reconciliation. Really. Exactly. The first, the first half is reconciliation personally. The second yeah. half is probably sort of that corporate reconciliation, particularly with the Gentiles, drawing the Gentiles yeah. into that same that same relationship. Yeah, yeah. That's because right. I think it's important to remember back in the day. I mean, uh, in the temple in Jerusalem, there were signs that said in the court of Gentiles, if you were to enter into the inner courts, 
you actually would be put to death. Yeah. You know, so that's how much, in a sense, separation there yeah. was between the, the Jews yeah. and the Gentiles. And that's Paul's right. now saying, Hang You on, have been brought in. You're brought in. Yeah. You know, there's yeah. no distinction now. That's right. Breaking down what's been such a long held tradition for, yeah. for particularly for the Jews, but also understanding for the Gentiles that yeah. in a sense they probably felt despised by the Jews. You know? Yeah, and even even those because there were a lot of Gentiles actually that joined sort of synagogues, sort of attached themselves to, mm. but gee, they were they were always there was always this second sense of being citizens. second rate yeah. citizens. Yeah. But that's not the case is emphasizing yeah. here yeah. in the Christian movement. It's interesting in here, uh, Stu, in the f- second verse, you know, he says, you know, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. I'm reading by the way from the ESV. Yep. That's good. With the letters, I like to get closer because it's a bit more complex. I like to get closer to the text. And the, the English Standard Version does get nice and close to the text. You will be helped, though, reading both the NIV and particularly the New Living Translation is quite helpful in yeah. understanding some of these things. Although be aware that the New Living Translation does make then interpretive choices. Yeah. Um, that yeah. not everyone uh, agrees with. They're pretty good interpretive Let's choices. Let's just do a comparison. Just which, which you read your the section you're going to read, and I'll just because I'm reading from the Holman Christian Standard Bible, just yeah, to get people. Yeah, which a bit is of also it. what is that called it's, now? The CSB. The CSB. Yeah, yeah, the Christian Standard Bible. Yeah. So mine is chapter uh, two. chapter two, verse one. This one. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Yeah. So mine reads very similar. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according yeah. to this worldly age, according to the ruler of the atmospheric domain, the spirit now working in the disobedient. Ah, the atmospheric domain. Let's talk about that. Yeah, actually. let's that's, talk that's about that. Interesting, uh, interesting translation. So it's interesting that he refers to that. And again, this is he's saying that. When you were dead in your transgressions, you were dead in your transgressions because you were ruled over by spiritual powers. You right. were ruled over by spiritual powers. Yeah. And he talks about it as the, he refers to the ruler of, of the power of the air. Now, you know, Greek and Roman thought they saw everything pretty much under the moon, uh, sort of our atmosphere was was the air, but that was also seen as being a habitation of spirits. Right. And a kind of hierarchy of spirits that are at work in the world. And, you know, all the all the, the gods that sort of, uh, I mean, this is the mountains. Were, they were seen to dwell in the mountains because the mountains kind yep. of reach up. They're up in the air, you yes. know, and so the gods were seen to dwell there and so forth. And so this habitation that was seen as, in a sense, by these people, and you see this in, in the, you know, the ancient, uh, these stories of like Virgil and Homer and so forth, that gods are all these spirits these gods are at work you know pushing and pulling human life and not very respectful of human life but mm. you know the these, high places yeah kind of and you've got to well. kind of appease yeah. them and get yep. one on side and you might get one on side and the other one will get jealous and ah oh, mm. it's just like it's yeah, constant it's just yeah. this constant thing well he's saying you were subjected there's an element he's saying there is an element of reality to that yes uh, there are demonic powers behind this but you have been set free from this he's saying Versary? and he talks about yeah. the spirit that is the, the prince the ruler of the power of this air and he talks about him as the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience it's very yeah. interesting amongst whom we, we once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind by so for example yeah. but he says but god who is rich in mercy because of his great love even when we were dead in our trespasses notice how he emphasizes that yeah. even when you were dead he yeah. made us uh, yeah. alive together with christ 
uh, in verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Jesus Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we mm. should walk in them. Mm. There again, you've got that theme yeah. uh, of the purpose of God. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And then in, in the remainder of that chapter, he emphasizes that uh, closing unity. of the separation. Yeah. So you were once separated from Christ. You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Uh, you were strangers to the covenants, but now in Jesus Christ, you who are once far far off have been brought in. You are fully mm. made members of the covenant. That's yeah. what he's saying yeah. here. And you have access. We all have access now to the greatest blessing of the new covenant, which is the Holy Spirit. Spirit and yeah. so there's an emphasis there again in the Holy Spirit. And then as we move into uh, into chapter, chapter three. three, then Paul refers to his own ministry. Yes. That he has been the one really set apart to bring this mystery, uh, what was a mystery to the Gentiles, but even what was a mystery in some sense to the Jews yes. was how this exactly would unfold and this gospel would go out. And now it's being revealed. And now it's being revealed. Yeah. And so his, he emphasizes his role as an apostle to the Gentiles to reveal this mystery uh, to the Gentiles and to uh, call them in. To and really God's that revelation purpose. coming through the Spirit. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting in verse 10, he says, you know, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be main, made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Mm. Through the church, yeah. that this wisdom of God, this plan of God, he's talking about the gospel, mm. right, mm. may be known to, the, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It's interesting is statement, this, isn't it? Yeah. Is this back to the atmosphere again or is it like... Well, I I, I think it, it links back to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, exactly. it links back to that. It's like, because so in these a guys sense, know who's in charge. Well, that's right. Mm. They know who's in charge. Mm. You know, so just just in case you think that they're not going to let you go, no, the church declares to them, you have no power anymore. Like the gospel is good news for us, but bad news yes. for them in a sense. Yeah, so, so it's saying that the church is declaring that they no longer have a hold on people anymore. And so it's just interesting because we think of the preaching of the gospel to people, but Paul is saying, it's but actually, we're also declaring the gospel yeah. uh, in the face of demonic powers yeah. as well. That's profound. Yeah, that's, yeah. absolutely. Then the, it finishes then, uh, Stu, with another another A prayer. prayer and, you know, the emphasis of this prayer, and this really caps off this, because remember, you know, we talked about that Trinitarian sense that, you know, it's about God's, that God the Father's plan, which is achieved in Christ, yes. right, so that we might be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And, of course, the prayer is that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Holy Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, you know, Jesus talked about sending his spirit. Paul elsewhere talks about the spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit of the spirit is the spirit of Christ. Mm. That's why uh, in the creeds they talk about the Holy Spirit flowing from God the Father and God the Son. You know, it's the spirit of God and the spirit of the Son as well. Um, yeah. yeah. And then it ends with a beautiful little benediction. Yeah, that's right. Um, so again, um, it says uh, that you may be filled with all, all the fullness of God. That's yeah. again, the indwelling of the spirit. Uh, and then now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Now that's an amazing statement to you because who is able to do far more, man, there's a lot of stuff in this chapter that yeah, he's done for totally. us. Right? We're Already. seated at the right hand of God and we're, you know, we're, we're filled with the fullness of God. He's just said that, that you mm. may be filled with all the fullness of God. And then he says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than mm. all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. 
to him be the glory in the church. Notice he, yes. <laughs> you know, he, he roots it there. Um, to him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Beautiful stuff. And this is this is us. This is this is where we are, Stu. And I think the thing that hit me about this is this sense in which my life is hidden in Christ now. It's not my own. Thank goodness for that. I don't have to I'm not in charge of my own life anymore. I am given over to this unthwartable purpose of God and I'm absolutely secure in Jesus Christ. Just before we close this episode of Thrive Deeper, I did want to point you back to Matt's reference to our sister podcast, Thrive Perspectives. In Perspectives, Matt, myself, and our good friend and deep thinker, Connell, are working through a series of topics unpacking the Christian worldview. We ask some of the big questions like, how do we reconcile suffering and pain? Or what about human identity or collective responsibility? What about my doubt? What's the point and purpose of prayer and much more? I'd encourage you to check out Thrive Perspectives as we discuss the ideas and issues that shape our lives today. You can find out more, as always, via our website, thrivetoday.tv, or search up Thrive Perspectives via iTunes or Spotify or in your favorite podcast app. We hope you'll join us soon. 